Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We live in a 24-hour-a-day, non-stop media society. And because of that, we get just saturated, maybe even oversaturated, with certain news, certain stories, certain news cycles. And one of those that seems to happen from time to time is when world leaders get together. Maybe a foreign dignitary is coming to the White House to meet with the president, or maybe, as we saw just a few weeks ago, our president's going to be traveling abroad and visiting with leaders of other nations, and the media is always there, and it seems like we just get almost a minute-by-minute description of what's going to happen. What are the travel plans? What's going to be talked about? What do you think is going to be talked about? What actually was talked about? Was was there any controversy stirred up? Were there any treaties made, or at least you know any talks towards those sorts of things? It's just absolutely constant about what might happen, what does happen, what did happen. Can you imagine if our modern day 24-hour press had been around when Jesus, the Son of God, met with Pilate, the Roman leader? Our news would never stop. It would be constant. What's this going to be like? And especially considering it was supposed to be a type of trial. Can you imagine all the, the speculation? What will be said? What could possibly happen within those halls? What's actually going on in there? What, what did? Ha- it would be absolutely nonstop as to what might happen, what did happen, what, what was going to happen, and so on and so forth. But we have just a handful of verses in John chapters 18 and 19. That tell us about when Jesus stood before Pilate. And even though it's just a few verses, it is one of the most fascinating conversations in all of Scripture. But to understand the conversation, we have to understand some of this person Jesus was talking to, the Roman leader Pilate. Judah, the region in which Jerusalem is located, of course, sometimes called Judea, was at that time, as was most of the known world, under Roman rule, the Roman Empire. Pilate was the fifth leader, called a prefect of Judah or Judea. And he ruled from 26 to 36 AD. He was, at best, an unstable ruler. And he never really gained full control of that area, even though he tried. And he tried in various ways that are very, very human. And you may keep in mind throughout this lesson... That one, the one thing Rome always wanted throughout its empire was peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That's why, for example, the Jews were allowed to follow their own religion. But only to a certain point. They couldn't do every last thing they might want to do. They couldn't put people to death, for example. But Rome wanted peace. That's what they wanted above anything else. And Pilate was never one to give up that goal of peace, but was not really good at seeking ways to get it. 
Philo, who was a Jewish writer who lived about the same time as Pilate, described him in this way. He described his venality, his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his abusive behavior, his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. Not exactly how to win friends and influence people. But that's how he was described. And even at the outset of his time in power, Pilate lost all control with the Jews and lost their respect for certain. Under the cloak of darkness, he had the Roman army come into Jerusalem and put banners all over the city, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal until I tell you that the banners were emblazoned with pictures or insignias of the emperor. And because this was Jerusalem, the holy city, the Jews considered that to be idolatrous, blasphemous, that he would put those things all throughout the city and they raised a tumult, they raised an uproar, and so he had them taken down. Interesting that he could be swayed by a tumult or an uproar because that certainly will come into play when you come to Christ being in front of him. Another time, Pilate was going to have an aqueduct built to the city of Jerusalem. That's certainly a good thing, have fresh water come in. But to have that done, well, he took money from the temple in order to build the aqueduct. And the priest caused all kinds of an uproar and a ruckus, and so he stopped the project. Interestingly, he could be swayed. Eventually, by the way, his cruelty would be his downfall. Late in his rule, he had people in the region of Samaria absolutely just taken out, just destroyed on Mount Gerizim, which is interesting since that's their place of worship. But he had them just destroyed there for no apparent reason. And he was actually called to Rome so the emperor at the time could ask him, What's going on here? Why did you do this? Why did you have these people killed for what seems like no reason? And when he could give no real reason behind it, he was ordered by the emperor, who at that time was Caligula, to take his own life. And that's how Pilate came to an end. That's the one before whom Jesus is standing. John chapters 18 and 19. As you go through these all-night affairs of these illegal mock trials, you have a ruler who is unstable at best, but who is cruel and who can be swayed by public opinion and also by his own whims and is trying to keep peace by what he thinks is just an absolute iron fist. And in fact, Pilate felt so caught in the middle in all of this that in a verse we did not read a few moments ago in our scripture reading, John 19 and verse 1 is the famous verse that tells us that Pilate took Jesus and flogged or scourged him. Now, of course, Pilate did not actually pick up the whip and, and perform the action. He ordered it done. But that was a way for him to try to hold on to power for a moment, to appease the crowd, to keep this from getting completely out of control. The people wanted Jesus dead, and they would not rest until he was on a Roman cross. And Pilate was trying to hold control. But it's the conversation or conversations between Pilate and Christ. They're going to provide our outline for our lesson this morning. We're calling our lesson, The Truth Stands Before Pilate. Because Pilate asked that very famous question, what is truth? I always wondered how he asked that question. But it's also interesting that the answer to that question was right in front of him. Because John 14 and verse 6 is the verse that tells us where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The answer to Pilate's question was quite literally looking him in the face. But he did not want that answer. Interestingly, as Jesus is on trial before Pilate, Jesus reveals the truth about at least three different matters. 
And there are matters that were important in that day and time, and important to this conversation with Pilate and the events of, of what was going on, but there are matters that continue to be important all these years later. Would you, share, would you look at them with me this morning? First of all, Jesus shared the truth about the kingdom. If you're in John chapter 18, you see the question that Pilate asked Jesus in verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Now we'll notice Jesus' direct answer to that question in just a few moments. But for now, notice that Pilate very quickly asks a follow-up question down in verse 35. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now I want you to think for a moment. Here was an opportunity for Jesus. If Jesus was going to reveal himself to be the one that people thought he was, here was his opportunity. Because here was a man who understood geopolitical things. He understood power. He understood the movements of nations. And so many people felt that Jesus really was a physical king of the Jews. That's who he was going to be. And so if Jesus was going to come, and overthrow the Roman government. Here he is on trial. Here's his chance to finally say under oath, if you please, okay, you got me. I'm going to raise up a military, and we're going to overthrow Rome. Or I'm going to work up through the system politically, and one of these days I'm going to be in your seat, Pilate, and maybe in the emperor's seat. Or those miracles you've heard me of me doing out there, those things are just child's play. You just wait until one of those miracles overthrows the government. This was his chance to actually reveal himself as the one who people thought he was, the earthly king. After all, didn't Jesus come to be a king with a kingdom? Well, yeah. But notice his answer in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of or from this world. Twice in that very short response, Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is something very, very different. What did he mean when he said that? Are we just to take it as straightforwardly as it seems? Well, yes. And Jesus had already made it clear that that was the case. You may want to turn back there. You may just want to mark it in the margin of your Bible. But this certainly brings to mind, does it not, Matthew chapter 16. Where on those, the hillsides of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus was asking, who do people say that I am? And the apostles gave those responses. Well, there's some who say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. They're not sure which one, but you're one of them. And Jesus then asked that penetrating question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus' response begins with those words, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But that's not how his response ends, is it? There's more to his response. After he says, I will build my church, Jesus goes on to say, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, from that passage of Matthew 16, a couple of very quick observations. One is, what is this rock that Jesus was talking about? On this rock, I will build my church. It's the statement Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything you and I do as members of the church is based upon the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. Everything is based on that bedrock truth. But then you come to this promise to build the church. I will build my church. 
And then it seems as if Jesus changes terminology. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom. So is he talking about two different things? And the answer is certainly not. He's talking about two pictures of the same thing. At its most basic level, the word church just simply means an assembly. Literally, it's the called out ones. But it's basically where it just means an assembly. What is a kingdom? At its most basic level, it's an assembly of people. Now, politically, they may be assembled for a different reason. But a kingdom is just simply an assembly of people. And Jesus is simply using two different terms to describe the exact same truth. The church and the kingdom. And the early church understood that concept, did they not? A passage we've used this year a couple of times to prove this point. Paul would write in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, where he wrote of God the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins. Did you notice the tense of that? He has transferred. Past tense. These are Christians. Colossians written about 60 AD. These are Christians who have been brought out of darkness into the kingdom. And you're going, what does this matter to me in 2017? It matters because you and I have friends in the religious world around us who think that the kingdom of Christ is still a future thing. That we are living in the church age because Jesus came to this earth in order to set up that earthly kingdom. He was going to sit on David's little literal throne in the literal city of Jerusalem. But the Jews rejected Him. And so, because of that, He set up the church to fill in the gap until He can come back and set up what you may have heard described as the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ that will happen before the end of time. By the way, why do you think the news is so abuzz this last week about the capital city of Israel being in Jerusalem? No offense, but who really cares where the capital city is of a particular country? That's why. It's because we care so much about that nation and that city because of that teaching. But that's the teaching around us. Here's my question. Why not simply take the words of the truth himself at face value? My kingdom is not of this world. When he had said, I'll build the church and the kingdom, and the early church understood they are, were already in the kingdom. Folks, if you and I are Christians, we are in the kingdom. It matters. And he revealed that before someone who may not have understood the import of that statement, but certainly had to understand that something different was being said to him on that day. And so he asked then, Pilate did, so you are a king. And it's the answer to that that gives us our second thought about truth. As Jesus reveals the truth about his purpose. Verse 37 of John 18, Jesus said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I came into the world. I have come into the world, excuse me. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, Pilate's question so you are a king. Maybe it was asked in a sarcastic way or scornful. In fact, those who study these things tell me that in the original language, the word king is actually the first word of the statement. Pilate actually said, king then you must be. It's actually what he said. It's interesting, Jesus didn't deny that. 
But he made sure to note that his purpose was, yes, a kingship, but a kingship that bore witness to the truth. Now, how do those couple of things fit together? In reality, it's one of the themes that we've been weaving through several sermons this year on Sunday mornings as we've been considering the words of Jesus. It was what Jesus said, for example, when he explained the parables, explaining why he taught in parables. Some would listen and some wouldn't. It's the key to the response of Pilate's uh, is the the last sentence. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Does that not harken back to what Jesus had said so many times? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the same concept. But it's a bold statement of the Lord to say that he came to bear witness to the truth. But I find it of great interest that we're reading this morning from the gospel according to John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about a lot of these trials that Jesus went through on that night before his crucifixion. But you know as well as I do that you have to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together, put them together to piece the the full story together. And John is the one who records this conversation between Jesus and Pilate to this level of detail. And you go, who cares? It's because John's purpose in writing this gospel was all about truth. You don't believe me? Trace the concept through the entire book of John. John 1 verse 14, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 3 and verse 21, Jesus himself said, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his words have been carried out in or by God. John 4 verse 24, the great statement about worship from the lips of Jesus. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's John who records, John 5 33, You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who have believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set or make you free. John 8, and verse 45, contrasting why some people believed in the devil instead of Jesus himself. Jesus said, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. And of course, the verse we've already quoted this morning, John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And what I forgot to put on the screens, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, in verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by the, uh, through your word. Your word is truth. Now, why go through all of those verses? Because of why John said he wrote his gospel. John 20 and verse 31 Many other things Jesus did in the presence of many witnesses that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. It is of interest that John is the one who records this conversation about truth. And records for us that Jesus says my whole purpose in coming was to bear witness to the truth. As Jesus stands before this political leader, he does not break character. He doesn't break into some new teaching or some new way of doing things. He doesn't start some new phase of his ministry or backtrack on what he had said before. It was a continuation of what had been said about Jesus before he came and what Jesus himself said throughout his entire ministry. And John, writing years later, 
wanted Christians to remember the truth. What does that matter? It matters today because I need to ask myself, if Jesus really bore witness to the truth, and if Jesus really is the truth, then what Jesus says about every single matter he speaks on is absolute truth. And oh, how I need never forget that. It's very easy to see the words of Jesus on certain matters and go, I believe that, I hold to that, that's fantastic. But then when he says something through Scripture that pushes against my natural way of thinking or what I might desire to do, it's easy to go, well, that part doesn't matter so much. But if Jesus is the truth, everything he says matters. And every, everything he says makes an eternal difference. Just by way of one example, go back to that statement he made in John 4 and verse 24. Why do we have so many what are sometimes called worship wars, right? Why do we have so many people arguing or not necessarily specifics of what songs we sing or those sorts of things, but it's because we've forgotten that Jesus himself said we must worship God in spirit. So there's got to be emotion. There's got to be excitement. There's got to be thought and truth. There is a pattern for it. There's something to follow. Does that matter? Yes, it matters. Because Jesus, who is the truth, said it. Jesus' purpose was to bear witness to the truth. And so I need never go against what he says on any matter. And then number three, Jesus before Pilate revealed the truth or spoke the truth about authority. It's follow through with this account with me a little bit. We're jumping forward a little bit in, in the account. To the answer that Jesus gave, Pilate asked that famous question, what is truth? Now, was that meant to be a sarcastic question? Was it asked out of spite? Was it an honest question? Was it asked by a man who's, who feels caught in the middle and he's totally frustrated? The Bible doesn't tell us. We can only speculate. But we do know that Pilate was somewhat amazed or at least taken aback by Jesus because he goes out to that accusing crowd and he says, I find no guilt in him. But when they wouldn't let that stand, that's where he let Barabbas, that horrific insurrectionist, the murderer, be released. And are you seeing why we took some time to talk about Pilate's character? Because he's beginning to see his grip on the situation loosen. He's beginning to see an iron fist is not going to take care of this. He listens to Jesus only when he's forced to. He offers to release Jesus or a known criminal of the absolute worst sort. And when that doesn't work, that's when we're told in John 19 and verse 1 that he has Jesus flogged or scourged. Now surely that absolutely excruciating act would be enough enough for the bloodlust of the people. And further, his soldiers make fun of Jesus. They mock him. They put the purple robe on. All those things that absolutely make fun and mock Jesus. Surely that would be enough. And Pilate could go back to just trying to keep the peace. But the people would not let it stop there. Claiming that Jesus had committed blasphemy. By saying in John 19 and verse 7 that he was the son of God. And notice what John records for us in John 19 and verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Put that in what we're, the, the terminology we're using this morning. His grip is loosening. He is losing control of the situation. And he doesn't know how to react. It's all unraveling before him. And so he asks Jesus where he's from. And Jesus will not answer the question. And with that, Pilate, I think totally exasperated, asks a question in John 19.10. You will not speak to me 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Put that in 2017 language. And what Pilate was trying to say to Jesus was, don't you know who I am? Don't you know the one you're talking to? He's trying to pull rank in the situation. He is in dire straits politically. And so he puts all his cards on the table. And at that, Jesus teaches a very short but an unmistakable lesson about authority. And you'll see it in John 19, verse 11, where he said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then he adds the statement, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin, greater sin. You recall then that Pilate sought one more time to release Jesus, but he knew this was totally out of of hand. With an appeal to Caesar, his hand was forced and Pilate allowed for the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. But consider those words that Jesus gave about authority. Now, they were true in an earthly sense, were they not? Pilate had to realize he was only there in Judah or Judea because somebody had placed him there, ultimately the emperor had placed him there. Pilate did not really have full authority. He'd been given certain things to do, certain delegated tasks, but as the end of his life would illustrate, he didn't really have everything in in place. But ultimately, he had a, a sense of authority only because it had been given to him. There was an earthly sense in which that was true. But is there not a deeper spiritual truth embedded in that statement as well? That those of us who are followers of God fully understand that the world simply cannot understand. And that truth is this, all legitimate authority is ultimately from God. Why is it that parents in the home not just have kids, but they have the ability and and the right to teach and discipline those children? It's not just because they have kids. It's also not just some kind of social thing. Well, we think parents should be able to raise kids. Although that seems to be unraveling our society big time. It's it's not that. It's because God placed it that way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And you have the teachings to parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's because that authority is placed within parents by God himself. Why do we have men, in our our case, four men, who serve us as elders, but who, who are called leaders? Shepherds, pastors, bishops, presbyters. Elders, why do we have these? It's not just because we think it's a good idea. It's not just because we think it would look good on some kind of organizational chart. It's because God has placed authority with the congregation, the individual congregation, in these men to lead. Now, there'll be servant leaders, and Peter would tell them not to lord it over the flock. They're not dictators, but they have that authority because God has placed it in them. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 13 to obey them. Why even do civil governments exist? Because that's God's way of organizing humanity in a civil way. Not necessarily in a religious way, but in a civil way. And it's why we're told in the book of Romans to obey and submit to the governing authorities. And it's here we go all the way back to the very first thing Jesus said to Pilate in this whole series of conversation. Because Jesus knew all this, and Pilate, he knew Pilate's heart. And so all the way back in John 18 and verse 33, when Pilate had asked, are you the king of the Jews? This is where Jesus' response gets even more interesting because Jesus returns it with a question. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this about me? Say it to you about me. Jesus was trying to point out even from that opening question 
to this earthly leader, Pilate, you don't know everything, and you're not in charge as much as you thought you were. Implied in that is that the one standing before Pilate on that day did. He knew everything. And whether it looked like it or not, he was in absolute control of the entire situation. And knowing that, we follow his authority and we follow the delegated authority of parents, elders, and government because they are given by God himself. Pilate's question fascinates me. What is truth? What is truth? I believe, personally, he asked that question just out of exasperation, frustration. Everything was unraveling before him. But when I read that question, I can't help but think of so many people in our world. We live in a world where so many people are just exasperated. They're just frustrated. And they remind me of, of Pilate. They may not be political leaders, but they're rulers of their little spheres of influence, if you will. But they're searching for something. They're searching for control. They're searching for peace. And they just can't seem to find it. About 40 years ago, PBS produced a six-part film. Some of you may remember it. The name name of the film was Scenes from a Marriage. It was a little mini-movie directed by uh, Ingmar Bergman. And the idea was simply to tell the story of a marriage, but through interviews that were interspersed through just watching this couple live, to make people see that something was missing. The couple's name was Johan and Marianne. And there's one scene in that particular series of movies where they're being interviewed by a national magazine and the cameras for the movie are rolling. And they're sitting on their sofa. The interviewer asks this question. Are you afraid of the future? And after a moment of pondering the question, the husband, Johan, gave a heart-wrenching reply. This is part of it. He said, If I stop to think... I'd be petrified with fear, or so I imagine. So I don't think. I'm fond of this cozy old sofa and that oil lamp. They give me the illusion of security, which is so fragile that it's almost comic. And then later in his answer, he said this. It's good for a conscience which worries on quite the wrong occasions. I think you must have a kind of technique to be able to live and be content with your life. In fact, You have to practice quite hard not caring about anything. The people I admire most are those who can take life as a joke. I can't. I have too little sense of humor for a feat like that. And then he put his eyes over on the person from the magazine who had asked the question. And he asked, you're not going to print this, are you? That may have been a movie 40 years ago, but how many people in our world, if they just paused for a moment, whether they could be so eloquent or not, would express much the same thing. There's nothing really deep about this life. You just have to laugh at things and work hard at not really caring. Just just go with the flow. Just take whatever comes. But if they ever stopped, to be absolutely petrified of the future. We live in a world where people are searching for something. And they think that something is contentment. 
They think that something is some type of peace they can't even really describe. And I'm here this morning to tell you that that something is truth. And the truth is the one who stood before Pilate. And maybe this morning you're here and something in your life is just not right. And you've searched different things, you've tried different things, and you may have even put Christ on in baptism months or years or even decades ago, but something just isn't there. I want to point you back this morning to the truth. What is truth was the wrong question. The right question is, who is truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, it is Jesus, the king. It is Jesus, the one who bore witness to the truth. It is Jesus, the one who can talk about authority because he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew chapter 18, 28 and verse 18. My question this morning is, will you believe the truth and will you obey the truth? Will you become a disciple, a follower, imitator of the truth? If what Jesus said is true about everything, then what he says about salvation is what I must follow. Not just what I think is right, what I know is right because he said it. And he, the truth, said that I must believe that he is the one or I'll die in my sins. He, the truth, said I must repent or I'll perish. He, the truth, said that if I confess him before men... He'll confess me before my Father who is in heaven. And he, the truth, said, the one who believes and is baptized, that's the one who will be saved. Have you followed the truth? And if you have, and yet something in your life is missing, may I remind you that he, the truth, said, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. This morning, will you come to the one who stood before Pilate in total control, with my sins in mind, destined to go to a cross and die for me. And to take me from a world of lies into the truth. If you're ready to do that this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.